This is the Phelan & Myers 2 for 20 with the Willett Phelan Myers & Rotts Wealth Management Group of Janie Montgomery Scott. Janie, a member of FINRA, SIPC, and the New York Stock Exchange, maintains a presence in Duluth with their office at 6340 Sugarloaf Parkway, Suite 130, Duluth, Georgia. Good morning and welcome to Phelan and Myers 2 for 20. I'm here today with my business partner, Kevin Myers, and we have a special guest today, Mark Lucchini. He is the Chief Investment Strategist and uh, President and Chief Investment Officer for Genie Capital Management. Now, you might recognize the name because he's frequently quoted in publications ranging from the Wall Street Journal, Barron's, to the New York Times, USA Today. You may have also seen him on uh, CNBC, Fox Business, or Bloomberg Television. So Mark is the man at Janie Montgomery Scott. Now, Kevin and I don't allow underlings on this show. So we said, you know, when we want to have our strategies, we only go to the top. So so first, Mark, thank you for being here, and thank you for coming down from Pittsburgh. We very much appreciate it. So if we could, let's start maybe back recap in 2022. You know, what happened in the stock market? What happened in the bond market? Because... At the end of 21, everybody was optimistic. I mean, nobody thought the market was ever going to go down, and clearly that didn't happen. So what was the – can you just kind of walk us through the various markets, what happened and why? Sure, Scott. I think it really was a factor uh, having to do with a couple of variables that were you know, relatively new to the landscape in 2022 that only emerged very late in 2021. Uh, one, of course, and being paramount because it continues to loiter uh, in the economy is inflation, uh, which emerged out of the byproduct of the massive amounts of fiscal stimulus, the obviously supply chain distortions, and uh, the pent-up demand uh, as a consequence of uh, the lockdowns and um, the individuals beginning to move out and uh, start to spend on things besides capital goods as we started to see some relief on the pandemic front and move to services spending. Collectively, it helped to pressure inflation up to levels we hadn't seen, much noted at this point, to 40-year highs. Uh, and as a consequence of that, that invited concerns, which inevitably was validated by the Federal Reserve having raised interest rates here starting in March of 2022. That was expected. Uh, but what followed, of course, was no less than six other increases in the Fed funds rate, the overnight rate that the Fed applies to try to thwart demand and bring down inflation as it emerges, time and again, historically speaking. And that effort has shifted investors' concerns over 2022 from one of combating inflation to one of perhaps too much tightening that could lead to some uh, impact on the rate of growth in the economy, which obviously will weigh on corporate earnings. And that's what matters a lot to stock investors. So as we went through 2021, it seemed like inflation was really taken off. But the Fed said, and I can't remember the exact terminology that they used, transitory. They said that the, the inflation is transitory. It's not going to be here very long. But you heard a lot of business people saying, I don't think it's transitory. So was the Fed kind of behind the curve and tamping down inflation through 21 and so as they went into 22 and said, OK, now we're actually going to do it? They had to do it more than they otherwise would have had to? Scott, no doubt. They've lost some credibility as a consequence of having used that term transitory, um, expecting that it was kind of a pig in the python, that uh, inflation was spiking, but it would kind 
kind of move through and then ultimately dissipate. And of course, when it didn't, it sustained, in fact, kept rising beyond expectations of where it might go ultimately. Um, it engendered a response by the Federal Reserve that was not only quick, but also quite aggressive in terms of the right hike campaign that we've seen throughout the course of 2022. And, and that surprised investors. Uh, typically, when interest rates move up, the value bonds go down. So it served to be sort of a double whammy in terms of not only stock prices having the negative impact of high inflation and the Fed funds rate being moved up. Uh, but in addition to that, the bond market had one of its worst years in over half a century. Yeah. And, and to me, people expect you know stocks to go down from time to time. I mean, if, you, if you've been investing for any period of time, it's just going to happen, right? To me, the more interesting market is the bond market, you know, because I mean, really, it's been the early 80s since interest rates have moved up in any significant way. So it's been years since clients have lost money in bonds or bond mutual funds. And so that, to me, is a much more interesting market. Can you talk a little bit, because I think most people understand the relationship between interest rates and bonds. Interest rates go up, the value of bonds go down. But why are rising interest rates negative for stocks? Can you just kind of lay that out for, for folks that are listening to this that don't understand, okay, if interest rates go up, why are the value stocks going to ultimately go Sure, down? sure. Well, and, and that doesn't necessarily apply to all stocks. If interest rates are rising, basically as a consequence of accelerating economic activity, which might breed a slightly higher level of inflation, that can be quite good for cyclical sectors of the economy that really demand and depend on faster economic growth, or at least steady economic growth with modest levels of inflation. Think areas like industrials, think of commodities, for instance, uh, think of the energy complex, certainly. But at the same time, what the S&P 500, which is a proxy for the U.S. stock market, is dominated by are large company technology stocks. Not only is the technology sector substantial in terms of its weighting in the index itself, but other companies in other sectors like communications led by Alphabet and Facebook. Um, in addition to that, you have in the consumer discretionary sector, domination by Amazon and Tesla. Together, these companies represented at their peak almost 40% of the S&P 500. And so when interest rates move up, the value of their earnings is discounted. And so what you have are companies that largely were selling at valuations that were somewhat rich to the overall stock market compress. And that compression not only weighed on the stocks of those individual companies, but did so because of their disproportionate representation in the overall stock market to also suppress stock prices at large. Mm -hmm. So even while the S&P 500 was down, call it roundly 20% on the year, if you look at indices that represented more technology-laden areas of the market, like the NASDAQ QQQs, or rather common uh, exposure to an ETF that holds tech stocks, that was down on the order of 35-40% on the year. Again, more indicative of what was pressuring the overall stock market. Right, right. Yeah, and, and one example that I use when I talk to clients and they ask, you know, why are stocks going down as interest rates go up? You know, at the end of the day, you know, the stock market is effectively an auction. I mean, if there's more buyers than there are sellers, it goes up. If there's more sellers than there are buyers, it goes down. And so, you know, if you've got CD rates in the fours, you know, two years ago, if you wanted to get a 4% interest rate, you had to buy stocks. You had to buy dividend-paying stocks because you couldn't get it in any fixed income instrument. Now you've got CDs that are paying 4 4.5%, sometimes a little bit higher than that. And so there's competition for those stocks 
from CDs, from bonds, that type of thing. So there's less money flowing into the market. Yeah. No doubt about it. I mean, when uh, cash or cash equivalents like CDs, like short-term fixed income instruments, like treasuries, start to yield uh, at levels that don't require a magnifying glass to detect the interest that you're yep. earning on them, yep. suddenly the TINA principle, there is no alternative to stocks, gets rendered to the dustbin. And as yep. a consequence, investors have found a place, not just as a safe haven asset, but literally a lucrative asset in short-term fixed income securities to allow them to park money, earn a reasonable rate of return, albeit still not yet above that of inflation, but nonetheless, either wait out the volatility in the markets or to provide a current income stream that heretofore was largely absent from the market, given the fact that the Federal Reserve suppressed interest rates for so low for the better part of the last decade. Yep. So, so you mentioned commodities a little bit earlier. So last year, like you mentioned, stocks were down, bonds were down, but commodities you know, I mean, anybody that built a house, as an example, they, they were stunned at what the price of lumber was, you know, concrete was, copper was, you name it. The commodities market didn't really change, actually moved up. You know. Was that a function of supply chain issues or inflation or both? I think it was more of the latter than the former. It was both. Okay. Um, certainly, you had supply chain distortions affecting things that you know couldn't be manufactured or shipped, and that, of course, it refers to something like lumber, which you mentioned, which you know spiked from three or four hundred dollars to you know six, eight hundred, over a thousand dollars at a point, and uh, had a major impact on housing costs. But so the same was true of areas like steel and others. But also, it affected areas where it was less related to supply chain than it was inflation. And that, of course, had a consequence to other areas like the agricultural commodity complex. Of course, the Ukraine invasion by Russia also had a big influence there. So it was sort of these collection of things that conspired to drive commodity prices from what were basically very low, if not unloved areas of the marketplace to one that suddenly was beloved because of this turnabout that was very bullish for the commodity complex. And so when we look at broad indices at the commodity market, for instance, in 2022, um, basically it was up around 15% or so, roundly speaking, versus the 19.4% price-only decline for the S&P 500. That disparity was enormous. Um, and we think actually there remains a tailwind to the commodity complex uh, because some of the secular themes around it, such as the lack of investment for a long, long period of time, is going to continue to drive that supply-demand type which ought to help to support prices going forward. Kevin, did you want to throw something in there? Yeah, I guess one of the other trends I think we saw was the, the value actually performed better than growth, and we hadn't seen that in quite a few years. And so could you just speak to maybe what drove that and whether you think that would continue on for the next few years? Well, Kevin, if you look at the composition of the value and growth indices, um, growth is dominated by technology, Value is dominated by cyclical sectors, namely financials and industrials to a degree. And so what you had, of course, was this increase in those cyclical sectors due to the fact that the economy roared in 2021. The annual growth rate for U.S. gross domestic product, just a measure of total output in the United States, was 5.5%. That was the most rapid pace of economic activity we had seen in a single year since President Reagan was in office. 
And so that boosted everything in that cyclical complex. Again, the other side of that is the technology stocks and those related to technology. And as mentioned before, the fact that that was happening concurrent to interest rates increasing, thereby giving investors reason to further discount the prospects for what their earnings growth was likely to look like if inflation continued several years hence. Uh, That would likely mean that, once again, those valuations had to be reset. In other words, set lower than they were going into 2021. So as a consequence of the sell-off in some of those growth stocks, along with the improvement in the uh, prospects for those cyclical sectors, it led to the shift to this domination that was about 10 years plus old of growth over value. Um, We think it's likely that given the fact that every decade tends to be known for something in the last decade in the U.S. stock market up through 2020-21-ish was, of course, uh, U.S. equities dominating global equity markets, and then on top of that, led by technology stocks, we do think there is a secular shift in place and that we're likely to see, if not more of a battle rage between growth and value, maybe value usurp growth over the course of the next decade, simply led by those kind of um, non-tech, more cyclical kind of companies that are benefiting from things not just that are occurring here in the United States, but since many of them are disposed to have large international businesses as well, benefit from improving overseas conditions. If we shift gears and start looking into the future, you know, versus looking at 2022, you know, we kind of limped into 2023 there's not you know unlike the end of 2021 there's not a whole lot of optimism out there as we go into 2023 which frankly to me is a reason that i think the market i don't think it's gonna be up significantly but it wouldn't surprise me if we were up a little bit just because there's so much negativity out there and i'm a contrarian you know everybody's positive i'm negative everybody's negative i'm positive you know so since everything's kind of pegged off of interest rates let's talk about through 2023, what you and Janie are thinking about interest rate movements, what the Fed might do? Well, in fact, everything hinges off of that. If we look at the rate of inflation, we think, uh, and this is consensus at this point, it's peaked at this juncture. The question is not whether it's as pe- it has peaked, but rather what's its glide path down and toward the Fed's established target of a 2% rate of inflation. And then, of course, before it gets there, because we're still a, quite a ways away from that, is what is the Federal Reserve going to do or continue to do to try to stamp it out? And likely, they have two more Fed meetings coming up in the next couple of months, beginning of February and once again in March. And expectations are currently that they may increase interest rates again in February and may or may not in March. But market participants also expect that before the end of this year, the Federal Reserve is likely to turn around and begin to reduce interest rates, not once, but likely a couple of times or more. Uh, Right now, the Federal Reserve has given every indication uh, uniformly Uh, that they intend to raise interest rates probably two more times, February and March, uh, by smaller increments than in previous rate hikes, but also to hold them there throughout all of 2023. So that's got to be reconciled one way or the other. And right now, the market seems to think they're going to be proven right and the Fed's going to have to adjust. And I'm not so sure that that's the case. And that's going to lead to volatility in the stock market as we go forward. The other threat, of course, is the fact that what they've already done to slow demand by raising interest rates typically works with a lag of about three or four quarters. And they only began interest rate 
uh, increases in March of last year. So really, all the rate increases in the second half of last year have yet to fully impact economic activity in 2023, which leads us to believe, like many, that there is a very high probability that we experience a recession in the second half of 2023. Not one that's particularly deep or protracted, but nonetheless, we could experience some economic fallout as a consequence of those rate hikes, which means that for investors, there's reason to be optimistic that it won't be more severe or that, in fact, there's still a chance that it's averted outright, but at the same time, also a reason to be somewhat prudent in your asset allocations so as not to believe that while encouraging the rally that we've had here to open 2023 isn't necessarily one that is stained or is likely to be linear in its improvement over the balance of 2023. So who who do you, when you look at your forecasts, who do you base those forecasts off of? what the Fed's telling you, you know, that they're going to hike rates probably twice at the beginning of the year and then hold them steady or the bond market? You know what I mean? The bond market, you know, if you're going to listen to a market, the bond market, the stock market, the bond market generally is going to be more accurate. But are you listening to what the Fed's telling you or are you listening to the bond market? Well, if you listen to the bond market, there is one statistic uh, that is called the inverted yield curve, which basically takes short-term interest rates and subtracts from that long-term interest rates on treasury securities. And that yield curve is inverted, which means there's higher interest rates offered by short-term securities than on longer-term securities. One that says that, it, that the Federal Reserve has tightened monetary policy to the point where they will ultimately be successful in combating inflation. But the flip side of it is, is that in the meantime, that inversion typically precedes a recession. Uh, by about a year, and it inverted uh, kind of in the fall of last year, implying that perhaps before the Federal Reserve may begin to pivot and reduce interest rates, we might already concurrently uh, be in a recession. And so kind of taking our cue from the bond market, it implies what likely the Federal Reserve may do, which is that perhaps they do stay longer uh, holding interest rates at higher levels, but ultimately perhaps later this year, they do give in to the will of the uh, bond market, uh, particularly if it's, again, occurring concurrent with that of an economic uh, contraction of some sort that would be recessionary as, or as defined in nature. Okay. Okay. So interest rates go up this year at the beginning of the year, presumably stay level, if not through the entire year, the majority of the year, then the expectation would be going to some type of mild recession. Fed starts cutting rates at that point in time. That would be correct. Okay. And and I think in that environment, that doesn't necessarily have to spell bad news for the stock market. Um, if the recession is relatively mild or we avert one, which, again, is not implausible, um, then corporate earnings don't have to experience the typical markdowns that they go through in the midst of recessions, which means that there is some legitimacy to the fact that, uh, as you said, I think we experience a, a decent year in the stock market, uh, perhaps not spectacular, but one in which investment. Uh, Investors will be rewarded for having kind of lived through and stayed tight uh, to their asset allocations, uh, even in the midst of some potential volatility we could mm. experience. And then what about housing? You know, housing's a, a different animal. You know, I, for some reason, I have all these Zillow, how, you know, Zillow emails that I get literally every day. And it seems like you're just starting to see housing prices start to come down some. But it hasn't been significant. 
I mean, what's our expectation as it relates to housing? Well, housing is very important indicator, one of our favorites. In fact, when we talk about things that are leading economic indicators that have some prescient value with offering some look forward into future activity, we look at housing starts and building permits as well as the National Association of Home Builders Sentiment Survey. Um, none are pointing necessarily to an immediate improvement. Uh, they've begun to sort of bounce around a little bit at very low levels, but encouragingly, perhaps foretelling the prospects of a, a bottom at some point. But in the meantime, um, as the saying goes, as housing goes, so goes the economy. And so typically the housing market doesn't bottom um, unless we see a bottom in economic activity. And obviously, too, many times that's happening coincident to when the stock market is bottoming. So we're very much looking at housing as, as an indicator of that. Still, like you had mentioned, though, what we've seen is some deterioration in housing prices for new and existing homes. Clearly, now, several months on end at this juncture, but it's been relatively benign at this point. And we think that's likely to be the case simply because there's a lack of inventory. When we look around at new and existing home inventories, they're still very, very low. Um, in fact, you know, well below what the National Association of Realtors suggests is equilibrium. In other words, there's enough inventory there to account for the level of demand, which suggests that that's continuing to help prices remain relatively buoyant even while we see this struggle with homeowners in terms of affordability, given the fact that prices, while having slipped somewhat, are still up a lot over the last couple of years. And then two, mortgage rates, while they've fallen here recently, are still about double where they were a year ago. Okay. So just to kind of recap as, as we wrap up here, stocks could be volatile. We don't expect any significant movement up or down necessarily. Is that an accurate statement? Is that's that a, fair. That's fair. Okay. Bonds. So let's say so I've got, especially in this environment with as volatile as things were last year, I've got a lot of clients that want to buy CDs. You know, rates are in the fours, you know, with, with a lot of CDs. If you're a CD buyer, right, at what point do you start to lock in and say, I'm going to do a two-year, a three-year, a four-year CD? It sounds like from what you're saying, maybe, you know, latter part of the year, you know, at that point, you start to lock into some longer-term CD-type rates or bond or bond rates. Is that a fair statement? Is that an accurate statement? I, I think it is, uh, because the risk of staying, staying too short-term is you get the roll yield that, as long as rates are going up, you're effectively renewing at higher rates. But likely, uh, we're going to soon be at the point of seeing peak rates on the short end, and likely then, after that, the next move will be down. Uh, maybe not until the end of this year. Maybe even 2024 depending upon the cooperation of inflation. But nonetheless, it's likely to be down. And therefore, um, you're going to be rolling off of those maturing CDs or short-term fixed income securities at lower yields. So we would expect that investors should be more inclined to start extending out those maturities. Not not 30 years if you were in you know treasury bonds, but you know at the same time, more in that you know multi-year range, uh, kind of that five-year or so area. Um, and maybe even something that's prudent to consider doing today with some money so that you are locking in those yields over extended periods because if the Fed is successful, which we have every reason to believe that they will be, in curing inflation down and toward their 2% level, and you might even expect that we could see a period where we have disinflation that even falls below 2% if the economy slows at the same time, um, you will have been rewarded or at least pleased that you did extend those maturities and that you weren't just rolling those, those bonds or CDs over at uh, lower and lower yields, not to find the kind of a more appetizing yields that we see today, uh, perhaps in the out couple of years. 
Well, thank you. You're a very smart man because you agree with a lot of what my thoughts are. So <laughs> that's, that's very clear. Uh, Kevin, thank you. We very much appreciate you coming down from Pittsburgh. And that is our latest Phelan Myers 2 for 20 podcast. The information provided here is taken from sources which we believe to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of such information is not guaranteed by us. This is not an offer to sell or a solicitation of an offer to buy any securities. Opinions expressed are subject to change without notice and do not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs of individual investors. Employees of Janie Montgomery Scott LLC or its affiliates may at times release written or oral commentary, technical analysis, or trading strategies that differ from the opinions expressed here. Investing may involve market risk, including possible loss of principal. Janie Montgomery Scott LLC, its affiliates, and its employees are not in the business of providing tax, regulatory, accounting, or legal advice. Any tax-related statements are not intended for and cannot be used or relied upon by any such taxpayer for the purpose of avoiding tax penalties. Any such taxpayer should seek advice based on the taxpayer's particular circumstances from an independent tax advisor. For more information about Janney, please see Janney's Relationship Summary, Form CRS, on www.janney.com backslash CRS, which details all material facts about the scope and terms of our relationship with you and any potential conflicts of interest.